It's Golden Hour Adventure Time, featuring everyday people doing extraordinary things. From the peaks of victory to the valleys of defeat, these are their stories. Now, from the back of the pack, your hosts, Justin and Robbie. Welcome to Golden Hour Adventures Podcast. Today's desk, guest, desk, that's a new one, uh, guest is David <laughs> Martin. Uh, he was, you know, we always have our guests at the end of the podcast. We asked them uh, who we should have on next. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when we had Ben Tuff on the Ultra Swimmer, he suggested David Martin. So, David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I feel touched that Ben popped my name up there. So I love you, Ben. Thank you. I don't know if you listened to his episode, but he had some good and some maybe, maybe. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I love that he described me as the creatine king of the United States. But I'll, I'll, I'll take it and I'm happy to answer as many questions on creatine that I can. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, so, David, uh, tell us about your background and, you know, what sports you participate in and how you got sure. into nutrition yeah so i'll try to give you a little bit on trail running too since i know that's your bag but i i kind of had a funny upbringing so i played hockey and uh, soccer in high school if you hear noises that's certainly the cats just causing mayhem behind <laughs> me so hockey and soccer all through middle school high school college, I was pretty much just farting around. I actually got my degree in fine art oil painting. So at that wow. point, I was just <laughs> drinking wine and painting nude, nude people until all hours <laughs> in the morning. That's all I wanted to do was just naked people. And the coolest thing is you could go down to the office, you could sign a little sheet, and you could rent out a person for two and a half hours and they would come to your space. You could just, if you wanted someone old, Get you wanted someone here. young, you wanted a guy, you wanted a girl, you know, you do whatever you want. So That's I did that. It was, it was cool. It was an interesting experience. I did some study abroad there too in Italy and England. And that was a lot of fun. And after, after I got out of college, uh, I was always athletic. My dad was a personal trainer and ran the gym at my high school and I was always kind of into exercising. So I was doing P90X in my, my mom's living room post-college with kitty litter boxes that weighed 20 pounds trying to stay fit. And a, and a buddy of mine did the New York City triathlon. And it just looked like he had so much fun. And so in 2012, I signed up for my first triathlon. And it was a local triathlon, totally freaked out during the swim, probably swam in the wrong direction five different times. <laughs> but I remember running at the end, coming to the finish line and everyone cheering and just feeling so good. And I had struggled with anxiety, depression growing up. I was on anxiety, depression, medication all through high school, college. And it was just it was such a high. It felt so good. And I, I competed in one more triathlon again, swam in the wrong direction. Um, I had the little cages on top of my pedals on my bike and my <laughs> shoes wouldn't fit into the cages. So I just flipped them upside down and I did the whole triathlon with the cages scraping against the ground. Oh my God. <laughs> it was oh, rookie, rookie. And I, I, I was working at a physical therapy clinic at the time where this is super cool. We were working with people three days a week and dogs twice a week. So we were doing physical therapy on dogs. So we wow. had them on like the balance balls, balance beams, balancing on four legs, underwater treadmill for dogs. Uh, very cool part in my time. And that really got me more interested in wanting to go back to school for exercise science. I said, you know, really, what's the next step? And at the time I was engaged to this girl and had planned to get married, but still really struggling a lot with depression, anxiety. And two months before the wedding, cut it off. And uh, went on a date with a dude two weeks later, came out to my entire family. And then I went and did the New York City Triathlon in 2015, got on the bike and was passing everyone on the West Side Highway. And I, I must have been like, the weirdest dude, because I was passing everyone on the bike, bawling, crying, because I just felt like Superman. You know, it was the first time <laughs> in my life where I was like, I'm strong, I'm confident, I can do this, look what I'm accomplishing, and I'm gay at the same time, I'm not any less. And it was it was just a huge experience, and that 
moment on, I was addicted to triathlon. So I, I put all of my eggs in one basket and started training a lot for triathlon. I got more into personal training. So I, I was doing pretty well with personal training. I, I've had the privilege to try, personal train a lot of you know, well-known people, celebrities. I worked at a gym in New York City. And then at that point, I joined a gym in New York City and joined a triathlon group called Full Throttle Endurance, who was started by this guy, Scott Berlinger, who used to be Viper on American Gladiator. So I don't know if you watched American Gladiator back in the day, but he was Viper. <laughs> That's awesome. And he, he, brought, he brought me on the crew as a coach, and I, I trained and coached and traveled and competed with them for about four and a half years. Um, I went and coached a camp in Italy. We competed down in South Beach. We won multiple team championships. Like, it was the craziest, coolest ride ever. Like, I, I had an absolute blast. And uh, when I was training with them, I became a three-time All-American. I was on Team USA and uh, competed at the World Championships in 2019 in Switzerland and was 13th in the world in my division. Um, since then I've, I've also competed at national championships and, uh, I placed fifth in my division in the country, you know, for 30 to 34 age group. And then, uh, COVID hit. And that was quite interesting time because no races were going on and you have all these type A personalities that, that need to race and, yep. and do these things. So, you know, at that time I was trying to figure out how to get my fix and I grew up in Litchfield County, Northwest Connecticut. And you guys can tell me to shut up or <laughs> no, come on in, whatever no, you want. It's great. You know? No, this is great. <laughs> Keep on going. I grew up in I grew up in Northwest Connecticut. It's there are some great trails in our area. We got the Appalachian Trail that goes through Kent, Connecticut, whatnot. We have a lot of other parks that are beautiful. We call it the Litchfield Hills because everything's just rolling. You know, there's no mountains, but we have huge hills. You know, what we would call mountains. And so COVID hit. And uh, I had some teammates who do the four by four by 48, the David Goggins thing. Mm -hmm. So you run four hour, four miles every four hours or 48 hours. And I did that to raise money for a food pantry and did it with a couple friends. And we had an absolute blast. And that's actually where I met my current fiance. Uh, he did the second run with me. And I think he messed up his kneecap. And to this day, he won't run because of that run that he did with me. <laughs> and then at that same time, I was like, you know, exploring, I was kind of moving from house to house and I was exploring a lot of the Appalachian trail and watching a lot of UTMB and these trail races on my bike while I was on the indoor trainer. And I just got the itch to do something ultra. I was like, I got to do something. So I went on FKT and I went to see if there was uh, a person who had tried to get the fastest known time for just the Connecticut section of the Appalachian Trail. So the Connecticut section is 51 miles and a little over 13,000 feet of elevation. And at that point, I'd never done a half marathon on its <laughs> own. I'd never done a marathon on its own. And I'm like, I'm going to do 51 miles in one take with 13,000 feet of elevation, I was like, let's go. And that's a, that's a, that's a big effort. <laughs> yeah, It was a big effort. And at that time I was just finishing my master's degree in exercise physiology. So I, I know Ben touched a little bit on nutrition, but my actual degree and what I'm getting my PhD in is exercise physiology. So just how the body handles stress specifically um, thermoregulation. I put people in a hot box and watch them suffer and study them while they're doing that. But we can We'll get to that a little later. So I, I trained for it. I got like 20 people, invited them. I had my dissertation advisor there, who's a huge trail running freak. And my fiance was there and we set up aid stations and I had someone pace me throughout all of these stations. And I ended up getting the FKT by, I think like 11 minutes. So I did it in 11 hours and 47 minutes. And I, it was ended up being the hottest day of the year. It was 104 <laughs> degrees. Like it was a record for that day. So it was just absolutely crazy. I ended up getting crazy, crazy chest pain. I remember my friend Gretchen and Nathan pacing me the last bit up Bear Mountain, which is the highest peak in Connecticut. And I had just had poles and I just kept on talking about how badly my legs hurt. And my friend Gretchen's an absolute beast. She trained with, um, a bunch of uh, Olympians and national 
uh, people on the national team for cross country skiing. And you would look at her and you just say, this girl's a beast. And she pulled me through the last bit. My buddy, Nathan is also like, he's a bigger guy. He's a Clydesdale, but for a Clydesdale, he can move for a long time and he can move fast. So they pulled me through the last bit. So that was kind of like my summer project to get that FKT. And then that led right into my PhD program that I started up at the university of Connecticut. So like I said, I work in a heat chamber. So I've done, I've done work for Camelback. So Camelback's big in the running community. So they wanted to design a brand new running vest um, with a, with a reservoir and all that. And they gave me four different designs and four different fabrics and all that. And they wanted to know if one design actually improved performance or gave someone a benefit over a different one. So I had you know, I think it was 12 to 18 subjects run with all four different vests in a, like a trail simulated run in the heat chamber. So I changed the elevation on the treadmill. It was a hundred degrees in there, had them do all crazy stuff to see if one vest was better than the other. And uh, I've done a lot of product testing. Well, I got to know the outcome. You can't just lead us on like that. (laughs) (laughs) So there were, there were some vests. They were doing this to help develop a new vest. Yeah. So I think they took the information that we gave them and they came out with a new vest with that information. Um, but there were a couple of cool designs. Like they had a trampoline aspect of the vest. So the, the vest sat further away from the back. There was like a gap and it was like a cool mesh square piece that sat in between Um, They had these pods in one design. So there was a pod in each corner that kind of lifted the vest off of the person. Um, And then they had different fabrics, you know, so um, I couldn't tell you the the semantics of how one fabric was different than the other. But certainly like we weighed them pre post to see which ones would hold on to more moisture versus which ones like wicked more moisture away. But the people who ran or were subjects in the test certainly had a favorite. And I think they took that into a further design into the future. So in terms of performance, we didn't see any differences, but performance is really hard to see yeah. even with fabric and clothing. And I'm, I'm working on this with another company right now. Performance, performance differences with clothing are very hard unless you have a very large group of people who are doing uh, the study so that your end size, your power is, is bigger, but um, so I've done some cool collaborations there. I've done a lot of other product testing. And now I think why Ben introduced me as like the nutrition creatine guy is, I mean, I was studying creatine during my master's degree and I was in the middle of my master's thesis when COVID hit and they turned my office into a, an emergency 250 bed hospital. The National Guard came in, was like, you can't even come in. And they kicked us out of our laboratory and it was done. So then I, I asked my advisor, my PhD, I said, I really want to get back to creatine because I think creatine supplementation is just super fascinating. So we have a a department of defense grant right now. It's a $2.5 million grant. And we're looking at the differences in heat acclimation between women and men. And we have a really cool heat acclimation protocol. We put our athletes through. We've had a lot of professional athletes come in before they go to like the Kona Hawaii Ironman. Camelback has sent us some of their pro trail runners in the past before I was even a student there to go through through heat acclimation. Like, let's say if they're going to go compete in a really hot climate, I have seen some cool studies where people have done heat acclimation to get ready for like hypoxic conditions or altitude. And if there's like a crossover there, which I think is interesting, but my study is specifically, I need to, sorry, I'm going to cut you off. I need to, Robbie, I need to hire this guy for, uh, for heat acclimation. (laughs) Let's go. I have a problem. So every time I sign up for a race, uh, (laughs) it, it's the record breaking heat. I just ran a hundred K last weekend in Kansas. The temperatures were supposed to be in the 60s and it got up to like 95 and I had been training in 20 and 30 degree weather in Alaska. So, yeah, I had fun on that one, but (laughs) I just had, you know, I was like, (laughs) yeah, we bring up training like, yeah, that's uh, that's me. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the heat. The, the I can talk to you. We could certainly go into heat training because the the protocol for heat acclimation is not not hard. It's actually very simple, and I could talk a little bit about the physiology of heat acclimation for sure. But I'll be looking at the because when you take creatine, you usually gain a little bit of body weight, and that's because of water. So um, there's an osmotic effect. Water is brought into the cell with creatine. So my my hypothesis was, and it's been the hypothesis of other people too. People have studied this that you actually hyperhydrate the system a little bit, kind of like if people preload with sodium and salt or whatnot, or even preloading with carbohydrates. The carb loading 
because every molecule of carbohydrate is stored with three molecules of water, you know, so you start to gain a little bit of water weight with the carb loading. So my idea is that that kind of hyperhydrates the, the system. So I'm going to be testing that in the lab with like cognition because creatine has been shown to enhance cognition. So we'll be looking at some cognitive tests. We'll be looking at a time trial. We'll be looking at core temperature, heart rate during all of these different, like it's over the course of like 12 to 16 days, these people are going to be exercising in, in the chamber. Um, and my other, my one other thing with ultra, I finally ran my first half marathon. I still haven't run a marathon, but I did my first 50 <laughs> K this past year. I did uh, a 50 K on the road around my local r- lake, which is one of the oldest running 50 Ks in the country or hundred Ks in the country. And the record stood from 1997 and I beat the 50 K. So I think I finished in three hours and 21 oh minutes. Oh so it was like, so I was, I was holding, I was holding six fifteens forever and I felt so good. And then the 20 mile marker hit and the legs just started cramping up and I was fighting through cramps for, for 10 miles. But I, I went across the finish line, fell to the ground and they carried me to a table and there I was for an hour trying to come back to life. But oh, wow, 321. Yeah. I still Jeez. would have been out there for five more hours. <laughs> <laughs> I was, um, there's been a lot of uh, <clears throat> stuff come about the cognitive effects of creatine. Could you yeah. know, can you go into that a little bit? Um, because a lot of people know creatine, and I'm just going to use this, you know, the bro science. Um, sure. And creatine for the longest time got a bad rap. Now it's like coming back around but they're yeah. also using this cognitive side of creatine to bring it back in, I think. Oh yeah, absolutely. So yeah, creatine's always gotten a bad rap. My, my brother works at a supplement store and I went in and I actually sold four containers of creatine while I was just visiting him in the supplement store. <laughs> just people coming in, just being like, they're looking at the whole entire shelf. And I said, creatine's the only thing you need on the shelf. And they were like, why? And I talked to them about it and they're like, oh, and they got two containers and brought it to the register. So um, but I had kids come up to me and go, it's a steroid. My doctor says it's bad for your kidneys. You know, it's not a steroid. It's not bad for your kidneys. It's safe, legal, and effective. And the cognition aspect has gotten a lot of draw in the last couple of years. There's been some really cool studies. They've been looking at it with people with Huntington's disease, Parkinson's disease, neurological diseases. So they want to see if it helps there. But, but the thing is, the creatine transporters on the brain are really different than the creatine transporters that are on the muscle. They don't have the same affinity for creatine. So supplemental creatine doesn't get into the brain as easily as it gets into the muscle. So what scientists think is they think that we need to either supplement with way more creatine to help with the cognitive effects of that. And these can be uh, the studies that have gone on to look at the cognitive aspects have been in like recall, have been like in um, visual spatial tasks. There was one really cool one that I looked at where they took rugby players, they put them through sleep deprivation. So usually with the cognition, this is very cool with the cognition piece of creatine. If you want to study it, you have to lower creatine in the brain. So a way to do that is for someone to have some type of disease or put them through extreme sleep deprivation. Like, so you have to put the brain in a really bad place in order to <laughs> see like, okay, now we're going to give them creatine and we're going to see if it's going to just have them go run a hundred so, miler. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Run a hundred miles, then give them creatine and then see if it helps. But they had these rugby players and they put a bunch of them through sleep deprivation and they had to toss the rugby balls through these, um, these targets. And they did a a placebo, they did caffeine, and they did creatine. And creatine actually performed just as well as caffeine. And caffeine and creatine both performed better than the placebo. Now, that wasn't more of like a cognitive, it was more like a spatial task. Um, But there's other studies that, like I said, have looked at the recall, you know, so you have to look at a series of objects, words, and then recall, say what came up on the screen, or like a spatial awareness, you know, maybe that there's something like a pod that comes up blue and you have to tag that pod. Um, there's a bunch of different tests that have been designed by like the military, and whatnot, that are computer tests that kind of test your cognition or whatnot. And that's usually what's used in, in a, a different type of study. But yeah, it's, they're, they're looking at it and it looks super promising. 
Um, but we just need, we need more money there to study it. And also we need to have the technology to actually be able to measure, are we actually increasing the amount of creatine in the brain with what we're doing? And a lot of my, like my lab doesn't have that, you know, so I'll have to show that the body is absorbing creatine in one way, but I can't specifically in my research say like the brain is certainly taking it up. Like it's just, that's the hard part. If you don't have the things to do that. So what are your so, recommended doses oh, on, on creatine? Let's just say All for your, your typical, <laughs> your typical endurance <laughs> athlete, because the entire container. No. So, <laughs> so you could go through two different protocols. You can go through a loading phase, which is 20 grams a day for five days. And then you can go into what we call the maintenance phase. So the maintenance phase is five grams every day afterwards. And so if you don't even want to do the loading phase, you could start with five grams a day and the muscle will be totally saturated by day 30. So you don't necessarily need to start with a loading phase, but let's say you're doing a competition or you have a lift coming up or, or something and you want to be loaded in five days, then you could do 20 grams a day. And the science shows that you should be fully loaded by the end of that five days. I've also seen another thing where there, these nutrition companies are coming out with, I guess, different forms of creatine, like HCI. Creatine, hydrochloride, yeah. all the things. The, the thing is, there's more than 500 papers on creatine monohydrate, and it works. There is little to no research on some of these other forms. You know, so creatine monohydrate especially the Korea pure that comes out of this lab in Germany is the most researched, the most sought after creatine and other studies have tried to look at the difference in creatine monohydrate versus these other, because a lot of these other forms will, will promise or they'll purport that, Hey, with a lower dosage, we can increase the amount in the muscle just as much as creatine monohydrate. And it's just not true. You know, I was talking to someone the other day and they were taking creatine HCL and the dosage was like 1.5 grams or something. And it might have not been specifically HCL, but it was it was something. And and a lot of the research that I've read after looking at a muscle biopsy, the muscle isn't as saturated as the creatine monohydrate. So so my advice would be if you're going to go and start supplementing with creatine, you would just go with the tried and true tested for over 30 years, 500 plus publications, creatine monohydrate like it works. The International Olympic Committee says it works. There's multiple papers on it. It's safe, legal, and effective, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't mess with it. Cool. Now we know about creatine. <laughs> now you know. Now you know what to do. Go out and get it now. <laughs> it's it's just really interesting from the hydration standpoint. You know, when you're talking about how you yeah. how you carb load yeah. and you know, like actually loading up your hydration into your muscles. That's that's very interesting. Running, you know, being that would be extremely beneficial running these long distance endurance races that, you know, myself, Robbie, and a lot of our guests do run. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the, the endurance aspect of creatine is less tested, but I, I do think the places where creatine can become effective is let's say you're on single track, you know, on a trail and you want to pass the guy in front of you and you have a little surge, like creatine might help with that, you know, or you have a really steep pitch and you want to power up the steep pitch. Creatine is going to help you with that. There's been studies where people have done 60 minutes of like aerobic tempo on a bike, and then they have repeated sprint intervals of 20 seconds in between, and then another aerobic period. And the people who are on creatine can complete more of those repeated sprints in the middle of the large aerobic period, you know, so I see creatine and the, also creatine has a lot of benefit in like the recovery side as well, you know, so as someone who's trail running, I could, or as someone who's an endurance athlete, I see it helping with those moments in the race where you need that quick surge of power. That's, that's a... we just need, we just need more literature. We need more testing. Yeah, sounds like it. Well, that's cool that you're uh, doing that. And uh, so, uh, so into cool. cre so into creatine. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I mean, I I've been taking it. I've been taking creatine since, geez, I think I was about twenty. So oh, I guess good about for 20, you. Twenty five years I've been taking creatine. Nice. Um, and I just take the five, you know, five grams a day. Perfect. But then do I you also, take it with a carbohydrate. I do take it with the carb carbohydrate now that I've seen some of the research come out. Um, mm -hmm. 
I'm more on the lower carb side. So when I eat my berries, I usually just right after eat my berries and some honey, I'll take my creatine. Nice. Yep. That's the way to do it. So how, how did you get hooked up with Ben and on the nutrition side? Um, well, let me re rephrase that question. What were you doing through when you were, you know, competing, what kind of stuff were you doing to learn about yourself and nutrition? Sure. Well, I, I, I was competing in triathlon for sure. And that's when I was doing a lot of personal training, working at the physical therapy clinic. So I was getting more interested in exercise physiology and I would run into Ben at these triathlon races. And funny enough, my, my beer right here has the road warrior on it. And I raced with Ben at that race. And I, I remember coming up behind him on the run and going, that man's legs are going to break. Like, I've never seen someone so bow-legged <laughs> in my life. And I, I wanted to go up after and tell him to never run ever again or come to my physical therapy clinic. But where I went to middle school, right after I graduated, Ben started working there. So we were both Rumsey people. So when we started racing triathlon and I would go to Rumsey functions or whatnot, I think just through that avenue, we started talking, we started becoming friends. And then he was always swimming at the lake where I did the 50K that I told you about this past year. And he was just always a great swimmer. So, I mean, I, I know he has his whole spiel of how he started and he sucked, which is true. And his form <laughs> is still awful. I mean, his elbow and the arm when it comes in the water is still awful. But somehow... It, Somehow he makes this awful form work. And I think part of it is because of his size, 12, 13 feet and how much he <laughs> kicks. Like he's able to kick so much. Whereas like a Katie Ledecky, you know, who's one of the most decorated Olympians, you know, swimmers ever barely kicks when she swims, but kick, you know, Ben just has these huge feet and just kicks. <laughs> and so I would swim with him all the time in the lake to try to train for my triathlons. Cause number one, it's always more fun to, to be with someone else in the water you know, and then number two for triathlon, if you can get on somebody's feet, there's a huge energy savings, just like how when you're on the bike, if you bike behind someone, you can save 20 to 30% of an energy savings by drafting off of them. So you can draft behind someone in the water. So I would just be like, here's a good little test to see if I can draft off of Ben for an hour. And we would do like an hour swim together. So we just started becoming great buddies swimming together all the time. We went on a couple bike rides, but then he kind of went off the triathlon realm and just focused on swimming. But we would try to get in a couple swims all the time. And he knew that I was going to school for it. I was getting my master's in it. And when I was getting my master's in exercise physiology is when he asked me to first help him with the first swim. And that's when we started doing all the kind of nerdy stuff like weighing him pre and post after an hour to swim to figure out his sweat rate and look at his volume and how to periodize and and all that so it was it was more of like a fun thing between friends to begin with and then it evolved into you know him coming on your podcast and talking about this this last swim and it really having more more depth in terms of like creating this emergency action plan and talking to coaches on the US a swimming team and you know, talking more about nutrition and bringing actual medical professionals on the swim. So kind of just evolved from there. So, you know, most, most endurance athletes, uh, and I can speak for in, you know, the ultra trail racing, usually the Achilles heel is nutrition. Absolutely. How, and I know lots of people struggle with it. Um, Luckily for me, I've just been able to, I mean, it's taken me years, but to finally, you know, hone it in. And there's days, of course, where it's not always there. But what advice would you give to someone that's really struggling with nutrition during these longer events? Every person is different and you have to train with your plan and figure out if that's going to work or not. So everybody's stomach is different. I had a lot of nutrition problems for a while and tried a lot of different things and, and went all the way from buying these goos and scratch and cliff bars and all these things 
to going all the way down to just pure dextrose in a bottle. I raced a half Ironman, which is like a four hour race for me, with just pure dextrose in my bottle, just like the simplest form to get rid of the citric acid, which is like a preservative, you know, in the colors and the fructose, which might be upsetting your stomach, you know, so I went all the way to the basic and then built myself up. But your, your stomach chemistry is also going to change, you know, so you might not be able to handle it in the beginning, and then your microbiome and what's what's going on in your stomach might change throughout the course of your training so that then you're able to handle it later on. So so my, my biggest advice would be to start small um, and then to work your way up to what the science shows is helpful, which would be at least for like, let's say we're talking about Ironman, because I'm more familiar with Ironman, like, a, you know, for a pro that's anywhere from a late seven hour to a 10 hour race. And then an age grouper could be 10 to 11, 12 for an elite. And then all up to 17 hours is, you know, it shows that you should be at least in between 60 to 120 grams of carbohydrate per hour. And the more carbohydrate you can ingest, the more successful and the faster you're going to be. So these pros are consuming anywhere from 90 to 120 grams of carbohydrate an hour. And that's how they're able to go so fast for so long. But a lot of newbies are not going to be able to handle that many carbohydrates an hour. Like, you know, it's funny before I came to my laboratory, sometimes that would be the suggestion and then they would go home, do it and they'd get sick. And it's like, you can't just start that way. Like you can't start with 2000 milligrams of sodium in your water per hour. And you can't start with 120 grams of carbohydrate. Like the osmolality is too high. Like it's too much tonicity for your stomach. Like you got to start small and then you got to work your way up because your stomach, your stomach can also learn. This is cool. It can learn how to absorb more water. So usually people can absorb from one liter to 1.5 liters an hour. That of course changes as you're more hot. Now, I was thinking about Justin during his his hot race here. So if you're in a thermoneutral condition, your stomach can absorb like 26 milliliters per minute of water. But if you're super hot, 26 milliliters goes all the way down to six. Wow. You know, so it's it's a huge decrement. And if you're sweating out like I had um, I had some really great athletes in my lab and they sweated out four liters of water an hour and 2,200 milligrams of sodium an hour. If you're, if you're sweating out four liters an hour and the human body, the most I've been able to see someone absorb an hour is 1.8 liters. You're going to just constantly be at a deficit and eventually you're going to fall off and you're going to be on the side of the road and you're going to be hurting. And the only way to change that is intensity um, and cooling yourself down and taking breaks, you know? So Okay, to go back to your like further question, Rob, is like if you if you need advice with the nutrition, you got to start low. You got to play with it. You got to play with it every time you train. I know a lot of people are into keto and trying to utilize fat, but if you're not training your stomach to get used to this food and you're not playing all the time and you're trying something new on race day, you're going to end up in the medical tent. I just had someone in my laboratory last week who ended up in the medical tent at Ironman Lake Placid. 14 hours into the race because she tried ketones for the first time on race day and she was doing ketones on top of carbohydrate on top of electrolytes on top of everything and it's like no wonder like you couldn't digest anything and you had diarrhea because (laughs) instead of your body absorbing everything you had more salt you had more salu and everything and we know osmosis water travels from an area of less concentration to more concentration So the stomach was actually pulling in water. It couldn't absorb it. And it was just going all through the small intestine, large intestine and coming out as diarrhea, you know? Yeah, that totally makes sense. So what are athletes taking in that uh, is 120 grams of carbs an hour? I can't even imagine. Like I can do 80 and that's just 80 to me is that's what I did on my race. I did 80 an hour. And, cool. and I felt fantastic. I find that I lower Good. my carbohydrates uh, down to about 40 an hour at night just mm-hmm. because I feel like my body just doesn't want to eat anymore. And then when the, oh, interesting. When, the, when the day pops back up, I jump back up to those higher carbs. But during the nighttime hours, you know, after midnight when I'm still out there, I, I lower my carbs and I, you know, I, mm. I function fine. And then I raise them back up, um, you know, as, as the sun's starting to rise. But um, you know, and then I also try to eat big meals during hours where 
a meal would typically happen. So if, around dinner time, right. I try to eat a lot more just to, you know, keep my body kind of on that natural state. Um, yeah. In the morning time, I try to eat a big breakfast, even though I'm still out there running, I try to eat something like a lot higher carbohydrates, a lot of pancakes or whatever they have at the aid station type mm -hmm. thing. But, and that kind of kickstarts me for that, you know, the next period of time that I'm running, but yeah, yeah. 80 an hour is like, that's, that's a lot to me. And that's kind of what it's my body lot. can handle. I can't even imagine doing 120. That just seems asinine to me. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and I'm assuming so, that's I, a lot of it's liquid though. Right. It, it's, I think it also depends on the person. Some pros are really open about uh, what they eat. I'd be really interested too, to hear more about how you came to that conclusion of doing 40 at night and 80. Cause I, I think that's totally valid. And I think that'd be cool to hear more about like how you came to that conclusion and trial and, like, and error and afterward <laughs> trial and error that's super cool I, I like that i like that but like for example there's an athlete right now who just beat um christian blumenfeld at the pto open um in wisconsin it was like a sub four hour race but he had 90 grams of carbohydrate an hour um and then um his name is jason west and then you have another athlete his name is sam long and he just po he posts all the time about ketones on his instagram and he's talking about taking in around like 120 to 140 grams an hour during his um, his races. So it's it's totally independent of the athlete. I mean, we we certainly have tests in the lab that can help people try to come to those conclusions. So this woman who came in last week, she did a test. We did five minute stages with a mask on her face, and we were able to see in grams per minute how many how much fat and how many carbohydrates in grams per minute she was oxidizing during these different stages and during these different intensities so i mean of course that can change from person to person and then maybe that gives them an idea of what they what they need to consume but again it can tell them what they need to consume but if their stomach can't freaking handle it then it's like what you know what are you doing you know it, I, I've gotten people come in my chamber. They're sweating out 2,200 milligrams of salt an hour. You know, so I had this one pro athlete who was literally just taking an old film canister that you would put old type of film in. He would hold it, you know, fill it full of salt. And during the race, he would just dip his tongue in there. You know, um, I know salt stick makes a thing where you lick your thumb and shake it and then lick your thumb, but he would stick his whole tongue in the container. Oh, wow. You know, but a lot of people can't handle that. You know, well, I would just um, assume like, how do you measure? How are you measuring? You know, if yeah, I have what works point, for me for, yeah, you're not measuring, but I guess it's just off the feel at that point. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So this is another um, common thing that happens to a lot of uh, trail athletes, especially at elevation, you know, the puffy fingers. Uh, when mm -hmm. your fingers start to swell and it's hard. I've done a lot of research on it and I can never seem to get like an answer because it's either hydration or sodium levels. <clears throat> and you know, if they both get out of whack, one goes the other way and one goes the other way. So there's been many times when I've been in elevation where I'm taking my salt pills, I'm drinking water, but I'll get the puffy fingers. And you know, a lot of times they'll say, well, you got to stop one or the other, stop drinking water or stop taking your salt pills. Have mm -hmm. you, have you ran into that with athletes? I have not. No, I, I can't say that I have a lot of experience in that particular problem or have I, I done a lot of reading on that. I mean, we, we did just have one person come in um, to our laboratory from the New Yorker and he did a whole story for the New Yorker because this summer was the hottest summer on record and he wanted to experience the heat. So we put, we put him through an Israeli defense force heat tolerance test in the lab. And then they did a whole article in the New Yorker and I, I was reading it and he, he described his hands as getting puffy and swollen during the test. And I, I can't say for sure that when I've had other subjects in there, I've, I've heard the same thing, but I, I will say without really knowing much about it, it sounds like obviously the body's retaining a lot of water. And I'd be curious to ask those people as they're getting really puffy, if they're peeing, like if they're actually urinating, because I know that's one thing that I've struggled with in the past, especially when I was I first started racing is I would do these incredibly long, maybe not incredibly long as, as Justin's <laughs> talking about all through the night or whatnot, but like a half iron man, whatnot. And I'd be four hours into a race and still haven't peed. You know, so I'm obviously retaining this water, but not urinating it out. And what's 
what's the issue? You know, so that that would be my question to the people who are who are getting puffy. Like, you know, are, are they re- retaining water and not urinating it out? What's happening to the kidneys? And is it does it have to do with some type of imbalance with sodium water that's that's leading to the water retention and not letting their body kind of function? Or is it or is their body just pissed off? And it's like, you know what? We're pissed <laughs> off. We need to coke. We need to sit down. We need to stop this exercise yeah. right now. Why in, is it always past, coke? <laughs> yeah. Why is it always? Why is coke the answer? A coke it's and pizza. So good. Coke is so good. <laughs> At an aid station when you come through and it's hot, just a cold coke. Coke, man. yeah. That saves your yeah, life. The caffeine, the sugar is just awesome. Yep. Well, I yep. can tell from um, my experience, what I've had with this, there's been times where I'm peeing like every 15 minutes and my hands are swollen and I've mm. continued to take my salt pills. And there's been other times where my fingers have been puffy and I'm not peeing. So I automatically knew there that I wasn't getting enough water. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, that's just one thing that now I take about a thousand milligrams of salt every hour. I just mm-hmm. put them in. I just put them in capsules. I just put nice. salt in capsules, and I just take that about every hour because I'm a heavy sweater. Um, mm-hmm. But then you know it's hard to keep up on the water at that same point because I probably need two or three liters of water an hour. Sure. So that's that's one thing that I've I've always struggled with was the, with the electrolyte portion. But yeah, yeah. It's a, I mean, and if you're a heavy sweater. I mean, if you think about it, your body is cooling itself 80% of the time with evaporative sweat. Like your your body is literally using evaporative heat loss as 80% of its mechanism to get rid of all of the heat that it's generating through metabolic heat production. And then also, you know, from convection, conduction from the environment. So if you're a heavy sweater, a lot of that water and things that are, you know, with the water that's forming inside your body, the water you're drinking, it's then working its way to the surface because the water is taking the heat, attaching to it, bringing it to the sur- surface of your skin to allow it to then come out of your pores and then dissipate as sweat. You know, so maybe, I don't know, this is my hypothesis. I re- again, like I said, I haven't read much on it, but maybe the the swelling of your fingers is your body trying to get the water to the surface to then evaporate um, to dissipate some of that heat as well. Yeah. And I've noticed um, my hands, even in the wintertime, I have a hard time wearing gloves because my hands are just sweat. Have you heard of that study? I think Stanford did it where they put people's hands in cold water. We've done that in our lab. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing that a lot this summer up in the mountains. Like if I find a creek, I'll just go instantly put my hands in there for like two to three minutes. I've nice. noticed some huge benefits from that. Um, yeah, not with the, the swelling or any of that. Cause I've kind of, I'll have my dimes, but that's kind of gone away, but just the cooling off after I heard about that study, I was like, I'm going to try this. There's a Creek right here and the water's super cold. So I've been trying that. Yep. Yeah. The military has these, uh, contraptions that allow the, the personnel to dip their hands and their forms into these troughs of water. You know, so you can stand and have your arms just totally submerged in ice water. And the idea is to see if that cools off the core body temperature, you know, and then the idea of the surface of the hands and then also like the bottoms of the feet, there's, there's no hair there. It's, uh, it's, I don't know if I'm going to get this totally right, but it's non-glabrous skin or glabrous, glabrous or glabrous, sorry, <laughs> um, but so again, we're looking at that portion of the skin that doesn't have hair. And maybe that's more conductive to cold water to then cool our core body temperature off. So that's why there's a lot of companies that look at hand cooling, feet cooling to try to cool down the core body temperature. But I will say without fail, the best way to cool down your core body temperature is try to cover the greatest amount of surface area. So um, we do one race every year in my laboratory. It's called the Falmouth Road Race, and it's where probably most most heat strokes happen out of any other race in the United States. We've got last year when we did it, we had over 40 people with a temperature above 104 degrees Fahrenheit. And at that tent, um, that race, we actually set up these um, baths, ice water baths. And if you have 104 or above, you go right into the bath and we start cooling you down. And that's like the gold standard for cooling people down is just trying to get them in an ice bath and cool down their core temperature as, as quick as possible. So yeah, if you go into that Creek and you put your hands in, 
take that water and even put it on your chest, put it on your face, like try to cover surface area with that cold water. That's super interesting. I've the the trail world, ultra world is they're lately, last couple of years, they've been a lot doing a lot more with ice and water at date stations. But I didn't know that cycling, they've been doing like ice fest and these other ice things for, for a long time. And Huge. Uh, I was like, why does it, it seems like it's taking the ultra world and trail running a while to catch up. And, but we already have that data there from the, the cycling world. Yeah. Um, now there's talk of, should these ice vests be legal and stuff like that? Because oh, totally. people are going faster, right? So the records are coming down and now they're saying, you know, it's the same thing with the shoes and the, the marathon world, you know? Okay. Yeah. But I would argue, <laughs> but I would also argue too, that the va- the vests are a safety thing, you know? And like, okay. So if you want to say the shoes are a biomechanical advantage, you know, like these brand new shoes that just came out that are five ounces, $500 one time use only that the girl just got her, her marathon win and broke the world record for the marathon in Berlin. And, whatever it was, um, two, two eleven. she was wearing these, these Adidas one time use only $500 shoes, five ounces, you know, like if you want to say, and they've done that before in the past was swimming with Michael Phelps in 2012, they got rid of the full body suits and whatnot, like fair, fine, you know, but my, my issue comes with when you're talking about the physiology and keeping people safe, right? If they want to put on an ice vest beforehand to cool down their body temperature before a race, or during the race or whatnot, like it's a safety thing. If they get above 104 degrees Fahrenheit and all of a sudden they start showing neurologic, like central nervous system issues, CNS dysfunction, whatnot, and then they go down and they die of it, then like, and you didn't let them have an ice vest, like you're now liable. Another part was in the Tour de France with the cyclist. You're not allowed. uh, I don't know if this rule is still there, but I know it was harped on a lot one year while Peter Sagan was racing, who's one of the greatest of all time, besides any Burks and all these other guys. And you're not allowed to get a water bottle um, close to the finish line because they don't want extra drugs, extra supplements coming in and giving you an advantage to race to that finish line on top of other competitors. Well, they were taking ambient temperatures off the surface of the road in France. It was 120 degrees. Like you, you had to give these guys water. Right. You know, like we're talking, we're talking about ice vests. We're talking about water. We're talking about easily accessible things that everybody can do. You know, everybody can put ice in a Ziploc and shove it in their pockets and do whatever. We're not talking about five hundred dollars shoes that maybe only some rich pro athletes can afford, and then people who are just getting started in the sport can't afford. Like we want to make it equitable in that sense, where everybody has the same chance. Um, but we also want to make it in a sense that it's, it's safe for everyone to, to compete. So I have no problem with the ice vests. I think we all need to be incorporating that. While we're on this topic, um, I would be interested to hear what your heat protocol methods are. Oh yeah. That's, that's fun. (laughs) Uh, I, that's probably where Ben likes to joke the most with me because we use rectal probes. So you actually have to stick a (laughs) rectal thermometer up your butt when you're in my chamber. So, so Ben, I, I, how PG 13 is this show? Oh, this is, can be as, as, as <laughs> bad Triple as X. you want it to be. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. All right. So, so Ben, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm also good about to become Dr. Martin and I'm gonna have some rated R stuff about probes up the butt on the internet. So, <laughs> so Ben always likes to joke with me because we use these rectal probes in the lab and um, you have to use them because we need to know what your core temperature is on the spot because it's, it's a legality thing. It's a safety thing. And so I'm telling Ben all the time about these rectal probes. He's like, how big are they? And uh, if I come up and if I come up to the lab, can I get two or three of them at the same time? And I'm like, actually, we've we've done that with people because we wanted to study the depth that so we we've we've taped three of them together at the same time at different lengths to look at the difference in temperature of, of depth. And he's like, you sick. Yeah. So. This so is going to be the cutout that we put on the uh, the internet, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Perfect. So, yeah. And, and of course, like being gay, he's like, Dave, you got your probe with you. You're going to use your probe on Jake. You know, put, and then in the movie, in the movie, he goes, put your probes away, scientists. And, you know, so always joking about the probes. Um, 
So, yeah. So, and we have different types of probes in my, my office as well. We have esophageal probes, which are, are not fun. And, uh, you know, one, one day we were getting tested on the esophageal probes. Sorry, I'm going off on your question, Justin, but I think this is kind of funny. The the esophageal probe goes up your nose and then you get a huge glass of water and you chug water as the scientist keeps shoving it up your nose. And the idea is for it to go right behind your aorta. So we have a way of measuring you. You sit on the ground and we look at your torso length to your, your head and we can get an estimate of where your aorta is. We put it on the esophageal probe and then you put it down and in. And um, I was I was gagging as they were doing it to me. And I'll take I the did anal it probe. Times. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I said to everyone, everyone knows I'm gay. And I said to everyone, I was like, I, I, I know, but I would take. I know it doesn't mean a lot to you, but I would take that rectal probe any day <laughs> for the esophageal probe. No problem. And everyone just like started l- laughing. I was like, rectal probe any day. They're like, of course you would, Dave. <laughs> so the way the 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 protocol goes, and it was pretty cool. We had the women's national soccer team in our lab going through the protocol before they went to Tokyo for the for the 2020 Olympics. Um, you come into our chamber and what we do is five days within an eight day period, you come into our chamber, we give you the rectal probe, we weigh you, we look at your urine to make sure you're hydrated. Actually in our laboratory is where the urine color chart was actually invented and created. So where you look at the different colors and you would put like your urine in a little cup and compare it to the colors. That was actually um, invented in our chamber by Dr. Larry Armstrong. So we, we look at urine color. We look at urine specific gravity. We give them a rectal probe. We plug them into um, this thing that we have that tells us what their core temperature is. And then they go in the lab and we have them run in, a, in 100 degrees, 104 degrees with usually like 40 to 50 percent humidity. We have them run usually around like 70% of their velocity VO2 max for 20 to 25 minutes until they get above 38.5 degrees Celsius. So I think 38.5 degrees Celsius, I believe you could take out your iPhones. I'm not entirely sure is 101.5, 101.3 degrees Fahrenheit. And once you get above 38.5, we start a timer. And then our goal is to try to keep you above 38.5 for one hour. And so if that entails like, hey, you can actually jog for a little bit. Now you're getting really tired. You need to walk. We usually have them walk like on a little bit of an incline. If we see the temperature starting to drop and it looks like it's going to go below 38.5, we'll try to ask them if they feel comfortable to start jogging again to stay above 38.5. And they're only there for an hour. And once they hit an hour, they're done. They can go ahead, shower, rehydrate, do whatever they want. And then they come back either the next day or, like I said, they try to do that at least five days within an eight-day period. And then I was part of a study where this guy getting his PhD wanted to see how long you could hold on to that heat acclimation. So there were three different groups. There was a control group um, that wouldn't actually do any heat training after they did that heat protocol I was part of the one day a week group. And then there was a two day a week group and the two day a week group certainly held on to the acclimation the longest. Um, But the one day group certainly held on to some heat acclimation, whereas obviously like if you're not doing any heat training or whatnot, then you didn't hold on to any of the acclimation. And the way that we can look at that is we looked at your sweat rate because your sweat rate increases as you go through heat act, you sweat out less sodium as you go through heat act. So your body actually learns to hold on to those electrolytes as you get more heat acclimated. Um, And then your heart rate at that certain intensity is going to change, it should drop. So we had, um, or we had, the scientist had the athletes go through a time trial and different tests to look at heart rate at different paces to analyze if they were still acclimated or not. But it's, the, the real acclimation for us in our lab is that five days, one hour above 38.5 degrees celsius now how would somebody reenact that like let's say that don't have access to your your lab what would your suggestions be for somebody who's at home basically yeah sure so there are devices now that you can buy like i was just training 
um, this guy, Bill, who helped write a book with Peter Atia. He's big on the internet right now with like Zone 2 and whatnot. His name's Bill Gifford. He was trained for the Hotter Than Hell 100 in Texas. And he came to our lab and he used a device called the Core device. It's a white square and the Core device sits on your um, heart rate strap and it estimates core body temperature. So you could go off of that, but the, the problem with the, with the core sensor, as we've studied in our lab, is as you get to really high temperatures, the, the variability is skewed even more. So it's like, it's, it's pretty good and pretty precise when you're at a, like a thermo neutral or maybe even like skewed a little cooler, or a little hotter than thermo neutral. But then as you like get really hot or really cold, maybe that variation's a little, a little more. Um, they also make swallowable pills that you can swallow. Those are really expensive. It wouldn't be so much for someone at home, but just in case you're interested and these pills sit in your gut and that's what Ben had during the movie. So we can look what your core temperature is during the course of a workout. Um, but for, for, for someone that's at home, when I had bill, even though he had the core sensor, he was in Utah and he was on his bike. I just had him throw on a bunch of clothing. And he knew what he felt like in our laboratory and he knew where his heart rate was. So he tried to recreate those same feelings, wearing the extra clothes and doing what he was doing in the field while he was in Utah. I know a lot of pro athletes in the triathlon realm will do a workout and then they'll sit in a sauna for 30 minutes afterwards. And they found a lot of benefit with that. Um, but it's, it's really hard, I would say, for like a beginner or someone listening to this podcast to know like, how their body feels at that temperature without coming to a lab and actually yeah. experiencing it, you yeah, know? That's, so I, th that's typically what is suggested is do a workout and then jump into, you know, a sauna, but you know, very small whatever. percentage of people have a sauna that they can go jump into. So you, I've right. heard immediately jump in a shower and get the, the water real hot. You know, it's just kind of one of those things like you have to do yeah. what you have to do because you know, most of yeah. us are, you know, hobby cyclists, hobby, hobby runners, you know, and though, you know, we don't have access to a lot of that type of stuff. So if you want to go uh -huh. run in a hotter area, you know, trying to do what you can to make it less yeah. painful. I'll tell you what I was doing leading up to the Appalachian Trail FKT attempt, because I knew that that was going to be incredibly hot is my car would be sitting in the parking lot under the sun. And I use that as a sauna. So I do a workout <laughs> and then I go sit in my car with extra clothes and I'd be in there for like 30, 40 minutes talking to friends and I'd be drinking water as I'm doing this. So like, that's another important thing. If people are listening to this podcast and they're like, oh, I'm going to go ahead and like subject myself to extreme hot temperatures right now. Um, you also need to be careful of how much water you're losing and how much you're dehydrating. Because when people leave the lab, we, we weigh them again to see how much they've lost and we'll say, okay, Hey, you've, I mean, I did a protocol a couple of weeks ago and I lost eight pounds. I lost 4% of my body weight. So I had to drink eight pounds of water just to get back up to my regular weight. And that took a long time. That's a gallon um, of water. And <laughs> yeah. And obviously you've heard of people dying of water intake, whatnot, you know, and usually that's from people gaining weight we're going from a place where you've now lost weight and you're getting back to the weight that you were originally at. So it's a little, a little different. Um, but you know, people, I don't want people going in their cars, losing eight pounds of, <laughs> you know, water and then just like going on their day. Like, you know, you need to rehydrate. You need to look at the scale. You need to look at how much water. Cause that's going to affect your cognition cognitions. I say that in the movie for every 2% body weight you lose, your cognition can go down 10% or even more, especially in hot environments. When I was at 4%, I was a zombie. I did not feel good. Um, so it was really important for me to get the water back, but um, you have to, you have to be careful with that stuff because that can certainly like affect your heart rate, affect your core temperature and you won't be feeling good afterwards. So be, be careful. Man, David, I think we just, uh, scratch the surface with your knowledge i think we could uh, <laughs> go on for hours and hours about nutrition and well, nutrition and i'm always this. i'm always happy to i'm always happy to come back you know i always tell people on, I, who i talk to i mean i feel like around different events there's different physiology or different things people want to hear about or analyze or talk about and you know i, I love getting the knowledge out because if people can be safer with sport by taking in the carbohydrates or taking in the amount of protein they're supposed to be taking in or using the cooling vest or whatnot and getting that knowledge out there is 
leading to increased performance or increased safety, like I'm all about it. So, and I, and I got to drink a full beer while I was talking to you guys. So it wasn't... <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> Get yeah, your hydration. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, two questions we always ask our guests is, well, the first one is what kind of gear do you use? Gear. All right. So when I did the Appalachian trail FKT attempt, I used my Hoga speed goat fours. And I guess the version matters because I guess when they made the Speed Goat 5, they made like a really big change to the upper mesh and a skinny um, a skinny tongue and whatnot. And a lot of people didn't like that, but I loved my Hoka Speed Goat 4s for that. But when I race triathlon, I'm usually using the Nike Vaporflies, except for I, I just signed up for national championships for long course in Florida at Daytona December 3rd and I got the new A6 speed or sky sky speed sky meta speed something like that so I'm going to use A6 for my shoes down at the national championships but I've used like the Nikes and then I've used the Hoka's and then for for swim stuff I have um Ben got me caught on the Magic 5 goggles which scan your face and give you custom goggles and I I've loved those and Roka is a company out of Texas that makes, um, swimsuits and, um, the, uh, the suits that you would wear in like colder temperatures. I'm wearing so, their glasses uh, right now. Yep. You got your Roka glasses. <laughs> yeah. Roka has been really hot on the glasses. And then I have my bike over here. So my bike is a giant Trinity. It's a time trial bike. Um, I got Dura Ace wheels on there. They're 808 in terms of like their depth. And uh, it's all tricked out. It's got all the bells and whistles, like a power meter, so I can know how much power um, I'm pushing. And that, that I, that's the cool thing about biking is that the power helps you kind of pace throughout a four, five, six-hour bike ride. Whereas I feel like when you're trail running and running, your, your pace and your, your heart rate is going to help you. Whereas you can actually look at a power metric on your bike, which is kind of cool. So I have my giant Trinity bike. And then I'll talk a little bit about nutrition. So Ben talked about drink simple as maple water. Um, I run a, a little bit of like an endurance team and we're sponsored by precision hydration and they make a great like carbohydrate product. There's what I awesome. love about it. Oh yeah. What I love about it. And I, I said this to, um, um, to Brad and, uh, Andy blow, who's the CEO is like, I love that it says 30 grams, like right on the product, like in big numbers so that when you're taking it, you can calculate what you're what you're consuming whereas like with a goo it's 22 grams and then this thing is like 19 grams like it's hard to do the math whereas if you if you have the precision hydration you have like that 30 on the front of the container like you know what you've taken in for an hour so i'll drink a lot of precision hydration i like the goo roctane um for water in my hydration bottles i think that stuff is like miracle stuff for like a five-hour bike bike ride and a 10-hour run off the bike um I'll do some solid stuff. <laughs> My Bella Vita bars from Costco are, are a good one. <laughs> I, I love uh, using they're those. Cheap. <laughs> oh, dude, they're so I use them all the time. They're so good. The pumpkin <laughs> ones are really good. They're out right now. <laughs> pumpkin? I didn't yeah, know Bella that. Bella Vita bars, pumpkins. I actually, I love them. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. I got my Garmin. I got my Garmin um, Phoenix 6. Yeah, my Garmin Phoenix 6 Sassfire. Um, I just did an interview for Wire dot com for uh new york times and they asked me a bunch of like about wearable tech uh, camelback had me look at the apple watch sunto uh garmin whatnot for like hydration metrics and apps but i've always been comfortable with the, with the garmin um just because I, I love the metrics that it gives me for for triathlon but then also when i'm doing trail running i think it's fantastic as as well um i never got into the the apple I watch or you know the Suntos or or whatnot um and uh I don't know I think it's probably a pretty good am I missing something in terms of triathlon or running or whatnot no, no I think you're hitting it all yeah yeah you got it <laughs> sounds like you got it all yeah so, so the next question we always ask is uh we're trying to grow our podcast we're trying sure. to network um who is someone that we should have on next that you have Ooh. in your network so if, if you, I can, I can give you people depending on if you love talking about like the sciencey nerdy stuff with me today, or if you want people who have just done like epic shit, like, you know, really cool adventures. <laughs> well, we are going our adventures. So, <laughs> um, so I, I have a buddy, his name is Dixon McDonald's. 
And okay. that's probably one of the most epic things I've ever seen. So he did this race across the Atlantic Ocean. He and three other guys rode across Whoa. the Atlantic Ocean during a race. And it's, it's probably one of my favorite stories. So two would row up top while two slept in the cabin. And while one of the guys was sleeping in a cabin, a swordfish freaking came up and the spear of the swordfish went through the bottom of the hull through the guy's legs that was sleeping underneath. Mm. And then the fish wiggled and it broke off. And he actually, he went on Lance Armstrong's podcast to talk about this because he's friends with Lance. And uh, he posted pictures on his Instagram of the broken sword going through the bottom of the boat and how in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, when you're doing this race, like you look around, there's no one around you because the, the wind and the, the currents and everything are taking you in different directions. So you're just on your own. And a lot of the times these guys row naked because you only have a certain amount of clothes, a certain amount of things with you. And if you go in your clothes all the time and you're sweating constantly in your yeah. clothes, you're building up bacteria. Yeah. And they did this for 30, 40, 50 days or something. Oh this was three years ago now. So, so they, they did these posts of how they had to get off, go into the salt water. They had to patch the hull of the boat from this thing going through. And I thought that was one of like the most epic like I had, I had FOMO so much. Like I wanted to be on that boat, like rowing with them so bad. And I, once Dixon was done, I was like, if you ever do something that crazy again, if you don't invite me, I'm going to be so mad. Wow. So, um, Dixon McDonald is surely, um, surely pretty cool. And then I'll say like, if you want to get kind of sciencey and geeky and talk about, so I think protein requirements are really important, especially like for trail runners and all that. Um, someone mm -hmm. who's on my my dissertation committee, his name is Dr. Bill Lunn. Um, mm -hmm. He runs one of the labs that I'm at. Um, he did his dissertation on chocolate milk. So if you can think back in the day when chocolate milk started to like make the resurgence as like a recovery drink, he was part of that, studying that in his his laboratory. So he could talk a lot about like protein as a recovery drink, protein recommendations, He's done some pretty cool tests on some pretty cool athletes in the past. And um, he taught all of my classes on advanced exercise physiology going through my master's degree. And he's incredibly smart. So he would be a cool person, maybe have come on and be like, this is how much protein you guys who are listening should take in. And this is what's safe. And this is how you can maximize performance. And he's, he's pretty cool like that. Both of those sound awesome. Yeah. We'll uh, jot those down for sure. Yeah, I'd like to hear the story on the on the rower. <laughs> oh, it's such a good story. He's so cool. And he's doing uh he's doing an Ironman in November. I think he's getting married next year. So he's um and he did the four by four by forty eight. I did some trail running with him in Boulder this past summer. He did trail running for his first time ever. And he was uh he was uh, he was great. He was a monster. And um yeah, he's a cool he's a cool dude. Yeah, sounds like it. Well, Dave. Thanks for coming on. Bobby, thank all, you, man. Yeah, appreciate all the knowledge you have and you shared with us. And like I said, I think we could do this for hours. But uh, absolutely, yeah, I'd be happy to come back and talk about something different next time. Yeah, sounds good. Well, once again, thanks for coming on. Hey, You're Dave. One, one sec. Where where can people find you? Ooh, so my Instagram handle is Endurance Dave. So that's that's kind of nice and simple. Um, and then, uh, I guess you could also, you could email me at david.martin at uconn.edu. UConn stands for University of Connecticut. So it's U-C-O-N-N. -N, and that's one of the laboratories I work in right now. And then I'm also based out of uh, Southern Connecticut State University at that laboratory. But I, I would say probably the best avenue would be like a DM on my Instagram page, which is just simply Endurance Dave. Okay, cool. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Thanks, Appreciate Justin. it. Yep. Absolutely.